leadership of King David in the Old Testament. And David was a man who is best known for the heart that he had. David had a heart for God. And because he had a heart for God, he had a heart for the house of God. David lived an incredibly impactful life, but he was most known not for the things he did, but for the essence of who he was. In fact, the Bible tells us of the occasion when the prophet Samuel was dispatched by God to go anoint the next king of Israel. Samuel was sharing what God wanted him to do, and he said it this way. He said, the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. Samuel faithfully looked around, and when he found David, he said, there he is. There is the one. That's the guy that has a heart after the heart of God. And that was the key to the success that David enjoyed in life, his, his heart. In fact, the title that we have for this study is Heart for the House. And if anyone were to ask you, where did you ever get a title like that? You could tell them we got it from the Bible. Because the Bible, in revealing to us some things about David that we need to know, let us know that David was a man who said, hey, I've got a heart for the house. David said it this way in our text. He said, I have set my affection to the house of my God. He said, I've got a heart for the house of God. And to give us a little bit of review as we're going to pick this study up today, kind of mid-course, we know that David was a man who saw the big picture in his life. As, as our study started, David was a man that said, hey, this temple, this palace, as he called it, it's for God, not for man. David understood it was all about the glory of God. That's the big picture view of life. All that we are, all that we do, it's to be done for the glory of God. David understood the big picture. David was also a man who understood that it was never about him. If you think about it, David invested the final years of his reign providing materials to build a temple that he would never get to experience, but he realized there were other people in the land living at that time. They would experience it, and there were people to come. And so David said, listen, I want to live a life that's a whole lot bigger than my life. I want to live a life that can touch those who are coming behind me. And David was a man who lived generously. Because of his view in life and the heart that he had, his mindset was, listen, if there's something I have that can be used to glorify God and help others, I want to use that. And so David stood up before the people and he said, all right, everybody, I'm the king. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, I've got a more preferred view of the future. We need a temple that would honor God and it would help people. And he said, I know where we are and I know where it is we need to go. And I, I believe I know how it is we can get there, but it's going to take some commitment and it's going to take some sacrifice. And, and David kind of said something like this. And to let you know, I'm not just standing up here telling everybody what to do. I want you to know that as we need to receive an offering to help us get where we're going, David said, let me tell you what I'm going to give in the offering. He literally gave it in great detail. The scriptures record for us everything David give. And David was saying, in essence, listen, I'm not an insincere, hypocritical type of a leader. I'm saying this is where we need to go collectively. I'll be the leader. I'll sacrifice. I'll be an example in that sense. But how many of you are with me? And the people said, we believe in that vision because it comes from God. It honors God and it helps people. And so that's a worthy vision. And we believe we can follow a leader like this. David wasn't perfect. Everybody in the kingdom knew that. David knew that. But David was a man that had a good heart and he was trying to do something good as he was following God's will. And the people said, David, we'll follow you. And so they observed everything David did. And in response, we learned last week that the people offered willingly. Nobody tricked them. Nobody manipulated them. Nobody coerced them. In response to a clearly defined vision and a sincere leader who had a heart for God, they just offered willingly. And then the Bible tells us that in the midst of their giving, they praised abundantly. And I just love that. That's how you know this was a sincere thing. I mean, not many people can celebrate an offering, but these people, in the midst of sacrificially giving, they were just so excited about it all. And then we saw finally last week, they gave in humility. 
as they're given this offering, here's the heart of the people. And this is what they said. God, we couldn't even give an offering if you hadn't first blessed us. We would have nothing to give, God, because everything comes from you. And so they had really humble hearts in it all. It wasn't like, God, you owe me one now, because, I mean, after all, I gave in an offering for a temple for your name. No, they said, God, what a privilege to be able to be a part of your work in this way. Thanks so much for letting us be a part of the grace of giving. And so there was a leader who stood out front, articulated a vision, ultimately, that was of the Lord. And people followed And they gave, they sacrificed. And and this week, I want us to see the byproduct of their heart for the house. We see how it happened. We see what they did. But really, what was the result from what they did? Now, I think we can be encouraged by what we see today. And if you're able, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing. We're going to look to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And last week, we finished reading in verse 14. So we'll pick it up this week in verse 15. I hope a little bit of that review will give you an idea since our reading today kind of picks it up in the middle of the story. That's where we are, beginning in verse 15. And the Bible says, for we are strangers. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, you're a stranger, okay? Strange people. He said, let me tell you, God, who we are. David now is talking to God. He said, God, we're strangers before you. And sojourners, as were all our fathers, our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. O Lord, our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh out of thine hand and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I've willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly also unto thee. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare their heart unto thee, and give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart, to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build the palace or the temple for the which I have made provision. We could read on, but I want you to look, if you would please, at the end of verse 18, and there's a statement there that I think strikes at the essence of what we'll see in our study today. The Bible speaks in the end of verse 18 of the heart of thy people. The heart of thy people. Uh, We see what happens when people have a heart for God. They do all the things we've studied to this point. But when you really analyze that heart, what happens on the inside of a person who lives out their heart for the house? And, And this passage today will kind of give us an x-ray into that life and we'll be able to see some elements through the example of these in this text let's pray together our father thank you for this day the privilege of opening your word and studying and learning and growing Uh, be honored through this occasion may we be helped and and lord i pray that the impact made here in this room would extend far beyond this room that the impact you make today would extend far beyond today may we like these people live for something bigger than ourselves We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much. You may be seated. It had been a really great run. For him, it all started one day when he was out in the field watching over his family's livestock when a messenger came and said, hey, you you are wanted back at the house. And he said, why? And he was told there was a prophet there in the house and he wanted to see all the sons of, of this family. And so David, as a young teenage boy, runs to the house and Samuel the prophet anoints him to be the next king of Israel. 
It was quite a process through which he went to actually make it to the throne. That's a great story in and of itself. But when David became the king of Israel, things weren't necessarily going very well. The previous king, really the first king in the history of Israel, was a man by the name of Saul. And he got off to a really good start, but Saul was an arrogant guy. And he was full of himself. And it was no longer about the glory of God and the good of the people. It was all about what's good for me and me alone. And he became very self-centered. And a self-centered leader is always a poor leader. And so Saul really made a wreck to a large degree of this nation that was really just emerging under the leadership of a king. And had David come in and simply found a way to hold things together... I don't mean any new endeavors, nothing new. If he just would have held things together, I'm sure history would have evaluated his leadership and say, you know, given the hand he was dealt, he did pretty good. All things considered, the mess he inherited, after all the predecessor did to really set things up for David to fail, David would have really done a good job if all he would have done was found a way to hold the kingdom together. But that is not all David did. We know that David was a man who took more ground for the kingdom. He expanded the kingdom. David was a man who fought diligently for the peace and the land. And it might be good for us to be reminded every now and then you have to fight to have peace. We know that freedom's not free. And David was a man who diligently fought to establish a kingdom whereby the people could enjoy freedom. And he was a man who prepared for the building and the financing of the temple. That was something that David did with his life. But what is really remarkable to me about David is the fact that his passion extended beyond his years. He didn't just live for what he could accomplish in his moment. He saw himself really as just kind of a cog in a greater wheel, as, as a piece in a vast timeline. And he wanted to make sure that he used his life as a, as a good stewardship that would take what he'd received from others and pass what he had t- uh, taken and, and made from it to those coming behind. And so David lived for something that was larger than himself. In general, the best planners among us would maybe plan with retirement in mind. Uh, Maybe we've gone so far as to prepare for our our final arrangements, our our funeral and so forth. But David said, you know, that's short-sighted planning as far as I'm concerned. I don't just want to plan what I'm going to do this week, or I don't want to plan for the, the golden years of life. I don't even want to rep- plan for just the day I die. I want to live a life that looks far beyond that. I want to see how that I can plug into a greater work that God is doing. And David did all that he did because he loved God and he loved people. Now, some have concluded that a life lived with others in mind somehow diminishes us. And the thought is something like this. If I give of my time or my treasure or my talents to someone else, I've been devalued by the amount that I've given away. If I see someone in need and I give them $10, let's say, then I have just devalued myself by at least $10. If I I give my time to someone who needs time, whether or not I deem them to be worthy, let's say I think it was a worthy investment, we still see ourselves as having been diminished in some ways. But you see, David looked at this whole thing and and he said, you know, I I don't want to live with the what's in it for me mindset. David discovered that the greatest life anyone can live is a life that blesses others and honors the Lord. And so David, his leadership led a nation of people to join him in developing a heart for the house. Now, the result, of course, was the building of a temple. The temple came in time, after David's time. Solomon, his son, would build it. But there was a more immediate result from their heart for the house. Yes, they responded, they followed the leadership of David, but there was a more immediate byproduct that emerged from their decision 
to say, I want to live for the Lord. I want to have a heart for God and for the work of God. And, and so if you have your notes nearby, I'd like for you to look at these today. And we're going to see some elements that really come to the surface that relate to the lives of these that, that followed the leadership of God in their lives. What do we find here? Well, the first element we see is that these people, the, the most immediate byproduct is they lived with a legacy in mind. They lived with a legacy in mind. Now, let's go back to where our study began today. We'll, we'll read in verse 16, and the, and the Bible says it this way. David, again, talking to God on behalf of the people. He says, for we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and, and there is none abiding. So David's talking to God, and he says, God, let me tell you, we understand what we are. We're just strangers and sojourners. There's nobody that abides in front of you. And, and what he was saying, in essence, is this. God, we acknowledge we're just passing through this life. We, we know that life as we know it now, it's not going to last forever. We, we know that nothing abides, nothing is going is to stand the test of time uh, forever and ever in a physical sense. God, we recognize this. We, we're, just, we're just really one speck in the grand scheme of what's happening. And, and so they were recognizing, since we won't live forever, we want to make sure that we're investing in the work of God. They went on to say this, O Lord, our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in-house for thine holy name, cometh of thine hand, and is all thine own. I, I love the way they said, uh, Lord, all this store, all these preparations we've made, it's for you. Here's the thought. God, we're just passing through. We're not going to last forever. But we've made a choice to use a part of this season in our lives to do something that's going to lead to a work that's going to, by and large, be accomplished after our lives. We're investing. We're living with a legacy in mind. A great work was left behind because they lived with that thought. It was 1888. He got up and he got the morning paper as he'd done many mornings and he began to read the news. And to his surprise, as he read the headlines that day, he read a headline that said, the merchant of death is dead. Well, that's a catchy title. So he went on to read about this and, and the story began to tell how Alfred Nobel became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than than ever before. And then the story said he died yesterday. Well, the problem was it was Alfred Nobel who was reading his own obituary in the paper. And he thought, I have not yet received this memo. I did not know I had died. And, and what happened was the, the uh, contents of the article were accurate, but they, they misunderstood. It wasn't Alfred Nobel who died. It was his brother Ludwig. But here is this man reads this story of his life. And, and he's known really uh, to, to all these people as the merchant of death. And he's known for his work in munitions. And he's known for being a part of an apparatus that would lead to so many people losing their lives. And he began to think, is that really how I want to be remembered? When people write the story of my life, when it really is done, do I want to go down solely and exclusively as, as that person? And that thought led to another that led to changes that were made in the course of his life. And it was in this season that he made arrangements that much of his vast fortune would go to set up the Nobel Prizes that would honor people for contributing to humanity, the best of humanity. That's the way he said it. That was his thought. How will I be remembered? I want to ask you a question today, and it's the kind of question you don't answer out loud. You think about. What would you like the story of your life to communicate? What would you like to be remembered for? 
Maybe you're thinking of how you'd like for your children to remember you or your, or your grandchildren. But I mean, even in the grand scheme of things, what would you like the story of your life to communicate? I think of what Jesus told us in Matthew 5. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, I wouldn't want to alter the words of Jesus Christ, but let me bring that into the context of what we're talking about today. Jesus was saying, in essence, why don't you live in such a way that the story of your life would contribute to glory for God and good for others? Live in a way that makes a difference People who leave their mark in the best way in life are people that honor the Lord. And each of us has the capacity to make a mark with our lives. Each of us. Many people would have looked at him and said, well, he's just an ordinary guy, just a common guy. But to me, he was a hero. My grandfather dropped out of school in eighth grade to go help on the family farm. And I guess that was a relatively common occurrence at that time. His parents had been homesteaders in southwest Colorado and and so he was raised in a farming home, and he began to farm at that early age, and he lived a life not knowing Jesus. And so he had nothing in his life that would have reflected a, a life of a Christ follower. But at some point in his early mid-30s, he had an opportunity to hear the gospel. And he came to understand that all of us are sinners. None of us are perfect. We're all sinners, and that Jesus died for our sin. And, and, and through this encounter with the gospel message, my grandfather accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and it radically transformed his life. He went from a life with literally nothing that would resemble Jesus Christ, and, and very, very quickly, his life began to, to change. Shortly after he accepted Jesus Christ, my granddad was an avid outdoorsman, enjoyed the Rocky Mountains. He, he got bit by a tick, and uh, they have a sickness. You don't hear of it much today, but it was called Rocky Mountain Tick Fever. My granddad was three months in bed shortly after he got saved, and of course he was very sick for a lot of that, but for a time he, he was in bed and all he could do is read, and, and he just would become an insatiable reader of the Word of God. He would read the Word of God for hours daily, especially during that time in his life, and, and I've heard my grandmother share how that when he emerged from that sickness, he would had an occasion to memorize the entire book of Romans. And the truth of the grace of God just totally changed things for him. He understood that our worth is not in who we are or what we've done. It's found in Christ, our identities in him. When that's settled, we can really then begin to live a life that makes an impact, that makes a difference for time and eternity. My grandparents, after this time, began to take in foster children and care for people that, that just needed someone to take an interest in them. They began to very generously give money to support missionaries all around the world. They had a real heart for missionaries. In fact, some of the foster kids they took in, in time became Christians and went to be missionaries. And they would go on to support many of those foster kids that they were able to help and, and bless over the years. They raised four children of their own who all became followers of Jesus, went off to uh, serve it, or to attend Christian colleges. And, and, uh, and, and in fact, my grandfather was, was a successful farmer, but as a bivocational Christian worker, while working Working a, a farm, a big demanding farm, he started some small country churches and farming communities around the area that didn't have a gospel preaching church. Now, of course, I love my granddad. He's been in heaven for years now. I love my grandfather, and I'm proud of the life he lived. But I share him as an example today to share with you that nothing is stopping us from leaving a legacy. You, you see, listen, an occupation does not make or break an opportunity. It doesn't really matter to God who you are in that sense. It doesn't really matter what you do. The fact of the matter is God has put within all of us the opportunity, the capacity to do something with our lives. And that work always starts on the inside. It's a matter of the heart. And when we have a heart for God and a heart for the work of God, it will be seen 
by how we live. What a great thought that is. They lived with legacy in mind. That was a byproduct of this heart. But there's another element here I want us to see. I want us to see, secondly, that they had joyful hearts. They had joyful hearts. This group that, uh, that changed their time and space, their world, they had an awareness that God sees our hearts. Uh, David made this statement in our text. He said, I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart. He said, God, I know you can look within and you can see the heart. You know what's going on on the inside. Now, this is not to say that our actions don't matter to God. But our God is such that he sees our motives, the heart. He knows not only what we do, he knows why we do what we do. And why we do what we do is as important to God as, as what we do. God sees the heart. Now, every now and then, someone will say to me, well, pastor, you know, uh, God, God sees the heart, so I can live however I want on the outside because God knows my heart. We've got to remember, if we're Christ followers, God can see our heart. If you believe that, say amen. But do you understand no one else can? And so we've got to live a life understanding, yes, we've got a God that can see our heart, but no one else can see our heart, so we want to make sure that the outside somehow connected to what's going on on the inside we want a heart that's right so that that will lead to actions that are right you see this is where religion breaks down in comparison to a true relationship with god religion tries to conform people from the outside in we try to legislate morality we try to coerce people fit them into our form or our format and it never works god says i tell you what why don't you have a relationship with me and why don't you let me get a hold of your heart and i think you'll find as i form your heart after my heart it will have results that will be seen on the outside. On the outside. God sees what we do, but more than that, He sees why we do what we do. Motives matter. It comes from hearts. Now, I don't get to fish near as much as I'd like to, uh, but when I go, I prefer catching fish. I don't always, but when I catch fish, I'll tell you what I do not do. I do not bring uncleaned fish home or else me and the fish both would be on the curb, and that would be a bad day, okay? So I'll go fishing, and I'll catch fish, and uh, I'll clean them, and then I have something to bring home. That's how that works. Now, keeping that in mind, I don't go to the side of a lake or, or the side of a stream looking for clean fish. It doesn't work that way. I'm just thinking, where are the fish? I'm looking for the fish, and I want to put my line right where I think they are, and I want to catch fish so that I then can clean them and bring them home. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but let me tell you something. God today isn't looking for perfect people who have it all together, who've got the perfect resume, who've never had a problem or a setback in life. God's just looking for people so that he can get a hold of them and do that work of cleaning, if you would, that work in our hearts that would change us into that which he would have us to be. Uh, I'm saying today that God doesn't go around looking for cleaned fish. He's just looking for fish that he can work on. And that's a great, great encouragement to me to know that God is just saying, listen, if you'll give me your heart, you'll find the results of it all will be amazing. This, the writer of Proverbs said this. He said, keep your heart with all diligence, because out of it are the issues of life. Jesus said this, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaketh. He said the heart's got to be right or what comes out will be wrong. As David surveyed the heart of those he led, he could honestly go to God in prayer and say this, and now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here to offer willingly unto thee. This was so important to David. He, he's talking about the joy of these people. Now listen to what he says next. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, 
Keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee. Now, I want you to notice that David saw the connection between joy and generosity, between joy and giving. Now, our world says joy is connected to receiving. And I would say there is joy connected to receiving. I think all of us like to receive. It's a lot of fun. When someone says, hey, listen, I care about you, or I love you, you mean a lot to me, and I, I want to give you a gift, it means something. It, it's, it's a wonderful thing. There, there is joy connected with receiving. But you see, Jesus told us in Acts chapter 20 that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed. Listen, I've had times in my life where I was going through a, a difficult season, and, and people would say, Steve, listen, I can tell you're struggling. Let me help you out. And I always appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm grateful for it. But it doesn't do much to build me up in terms of, of my life. I've had other times in my life where, where God's been blessing, and I've been able to reach out and help others. And it's been a great joy to say, Lord, you've been good to me, and, and I thank you how you provided over there. But God, thank you that you're now allowing me to be the source of provision for another person, for another you see, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And this is true whether we believe it or not. It's true. And when we believe it, here, here get this thought. If you're listening, say amen. Oh, boy. If you're listening, say amen. Fake it, all right? Here's what happens when we know what Jesus said and we believe it. We unlock the door to joy in our life. Because when we believe it's more blessed to give than to receive, no one can hold us captive. It's not up to them. It's up to us. Now, listen, if we'll really think about it, if we're really honest with ourselves, most of the time in my life, and I'm sure you'd say it's similar in your life, when I have a lack of joy, maybe a discouragement about something, if I really evaluated what's going on in my life, the source of that is my expectations have not been met. I thought the day would turn out this way. It didn't, therefore I'm disappointed. I thought this person would treat me that way. They didn't, therefore I'm disappointed. I thought this situation would work this way. It didn't, therefore I'm disappointed. I'm discouraged. My joy is gone. My expectations were not met. I wasn't treated by life the way I thought. I wasn't treated by others the way I'd hoped. The, the cosmos, this world system, man, it's a rigged game and it's against me. And therefore, I feel bad about that. My joy is gone. And when we think that way, what we are saying is I'm a victim. I'm a victim. If you're not nice to me, you have the power to make me feel. If things don't work out, the system, the, the world in which I'm living, I'm a victim. And I'm saying to you today, God loves you so much. He didn't build you to be a victim. And I'm not insinuating you're not going to go through things in life. But I'm saying when we understand that God has put something on the inside of us that can be a blessing to others, and when we learn that it's more blessed to receive, uh, uh, to give rather than to receive, nobody has the capacity to make us feel one way or another. It's an inside job. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And our response to the truth of the Lord has an impact. The lid to joy is removed when we understand that joy comes from a heart that loves to give we realize that no one really has then control over our joy. It's up to us. I shared recently that when our church was about 76 weeks old, that we took a special offering to provide for the down payment on our first property right, right next door. And um, many of you know we're getting ready to start a new church, and, and Matt and Katie are going, and 
I remember when Matt talked to me about what the Lord was putting on his heart, I told my wife, I said, he's pretty young, he's pretty young. And my wife reminded me, he's the same age I was when we came here, you know, so he's apparently he's pretty old. He's very wise. No, he, he is young and he's got a lot to learn, but he's, he's going to do a great job. And, and I remember when we came here, look, I, I, there, I had no sense that, you know, I know much. I sincerely just believed this is what God wants me to do, so I'm going to do it. And I kind of thought this, this is not good thinking, but I kind of thought, God probably wants me to really fail to teach me a lesson that way. You know, there were times I thought that. But we got out here and people started getting saved and God started bringing a church together. And so we thought, all right, we need a building. And uh, so we took this offering. And you guys heard me say we needed 50000 to close escrow. And, and in that very first offering, and it was such a special time. I mean, we've had many special times since then, but that was kind of the one that got the ball rolling. Uh, our church family came together and it was a $55,000 offering we received that night. And then, and then we did commitments over the course of the next year, and the commitments enabled us to work on our building as we went, and that way we didn't have to borrow any more money. We could just buy the property and, and do all the work. It was amazing. Um, people gave in a way that night that was just, it was humbling to be a part of it. It was humbling to be a part of it. I, I mean, I could tell a lot of stories. I won't because it embarrassed some that are even in the room right now, but, but I, I can tell you, uh, you know, like envelopes with jewelry inside with, with a note that would say, please sell this and put it towards the building. Now, I don't know there's any crabby people in this room here today. If you are, I'm so sorry for you. You don't have to be that way, all right? Don't be that victim. You're better than that. Um, but somebody could say, oh, I can't believe you made people do that. Listen, I wouldn't have had enough sense to tell anybody to do that. I didn't know what I was doing. I just said, hey, you know, here's an opportunity. And the church family got together and we said, let's receive an offering. It was a team thing. And, and, Apparently, God put it on the heart of some people to do these types of things. And it was amazing to me, humbling, humbling. And um, as, as I shared the uh, result of it all with our church family that night, the most amazing part of it all was the response. Okay, so here's a room full of people, small church, all right? And, and we sacrificially gave, every one of us, the result was what we needed to get the building and the commitments we could tell would let us do the renovation. And I announced the total. I mean, it was like your favorite team just won the championship game. Cheering, celebrating, high-fiving, hugging, crying. It was unbelievable. I, I mean, it was the kind of sincere, authentic result. You, you can't micromanage that. You, you can't find a way. I, you know, if I do this and this and this, I'm going to get that. It was none of that. I mean, it was just so authentic. It was real Christianity. But, but why was that the result? Because the giving was from willing hearts. And it was from people that had a heart for the house. And, and it was done for the right reasons. We've seen how God loves cheerful givers. But his desire is that, that all we do would come from hearts that seek to honor him. The Apostle Paul said it this way, and I'm kind of picking this up mid-statement, but, but he said, listen, not with eye service as men pleasers. He said, don't do what you do to please men. You're, that's, a, that's a fool's errand. That's a fool's errand. He said, don't make that your goal in life. You're going to have a miserable life. He said, not men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Paul said, let me tell you how to live life. Do the will of God from your heart. Do it from your heart. Do what God wants you to do. Listen. Do you know why giving to my wife and serving my wife usually, not always, usually is very easy for me? I got to put that caveat in there. My wife's lurking somewhere, I'm sure. She'll be in one of the services today. But uh, you know why it's usually easy for me? She has my heart. I'm crazy about her. I love her. 
And so if she needs something and I can do it most of the time, unless the game's on or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. But I mean, most of the time it's like, I'm happy to do that because I love her. You know, I, I've got two daughters and I think they would tell you and they would, they would mean it. They would tell you, hey, if I ever have a legitimate need in my life, my dad would do anything to help me out. And you know why they know that? Because they know that I love them. And I want you to extrapolate that into the spiritual realm when you have a heart for God. It changes the way you live. Those who made such a difference with their lives did so by way of a decision to leave a legacy of faith and faithfulness through their hearts that were filled with joy. And then we'll see finally today that these people, finally, they had bright hopes for the future. They had bright hopes for the future. Let's listen to how David finishes up, at least in our Texas study today. He's praying to the Lord, and he says to, to God, And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart or a mature heart. He's saying, God, Solomon, I've, God, I got 40 years of experience being the king. Solomon's never been a king one day in his life. He's going to need some help, some maturing, some wisdom. And so would you give to him a perfect heart, mature heart, because it's all about the heart, the heart of the matter. It's a matter of the heart. God, he needs help first and foremost there. And then help him to keep thy commandments and thy testimonies and thy statutes and to do all these things and to build the palace or the temple for the which I have made provision. But what I love is David is saying, in essence, God, you're going to have to help Solomon because I know he can't do it. But God, you can. If you help him, it'll get done. That temple will get built. The vision will come to fruition. The difference will be made. God, I'm looking in the future, and I know it's going to take a work from you, but I believe it's going to be done. Listen, David is talking about this temple. Here he is. He's an old man. He's lived a long life, but he had a faith that God would continue to work, and he asked God to help his son along the way. You know, I've noticed a really strange phenomenon from people of faith over the last 20 or so years. It may have been before that, and I wasn't paying attention, but I've seen many people of faith today who are just really discouraged. And we look at our world, and, and we see the explosion in population and we think boy more people are being born physically than born again spiritually and, and many christians forgive me but many christians look at, at at our nation and we we think of many of the blights on our nation the, the slavery and other things and we, we think of those but but we have a sense that you know in in a lot of ways god's used our our nation for good and, and we think of the judeo-christian ethic upon which our nation was founded and so many of our founders although imperfect flawed people just as we all are uh, were people of faith and, and, and principle guided the way. And, and we kind of see the, the drifting of that. And, and, and a lot of Christians have looked at all that and just kind of surmised, well, things seem to be going bad. Probably what we need to do is just sit down and shut up and, and, and not rock the boat. And, and, and maybe as our persecution, uh, or persecution rather, to people of faith is increasing. And Christians, more Christians were killed last year than in the last many, many years in our world. And, and, and we see the uh, freedoms of people of faith eroding. Uh, a lot of Christians are like, maybe if we just don't rock the boat, we can ride it out. It, it, it'll just, maybe we won't have to have to experience too much of that. If we just get real quiet about everything, not a real bright hope for the future. The thought of the good old days are long behind us. There's nothing left for us to do now, but just kind of hunker down, try not to lose too many and, and uh, hold our ground and, and uh, let's just kind of wait for the end and, and try not to do too much. And I want you to know, I couldn't disagree with that more. 
I can't think of a philosophy that I would refute any stronger than a philosophy that says because things aren't going the way we'd prefer they go, let's not do much about it. Edmund Burke is credited with this saying. He said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing. A couple thoughts about that statement. He acknowledged brilliantly that there is evil in this world. And there is a conflict between good and evil. And he said the only thing for evil to, uh, to, to triumph is this, that good men do nothing. He didn't say that good men become evil men. He said that good men do nothing. And I believe we're living in a day and age, and forgive me, I'm talking to Coastline Baptist Church now. I believe we're living in a region in a moment of time where there are many good people who love the Lord, who have a sincere heart for God, but aren't actively doing what God would have us to do. And it's our acquiescence that can lead to the demise of that which is happening around us. And I'm saying to our church today, this is no time to do nothing. This is the time to recommit and say, I want to do everything that God would have me to do. People are talking about burnout today. We've got far more rust out than burnout going on when it comes to people of faith. Here's my philosophy. Jesus is coming again. And if Jesus comes after my life has been lived, I've got a lot to do in this life. I want to tell as many people as I can. I want to work as hard as I can. I, I want to be after it all the live long day, bulldoggedly, persistently after it. I want to make the most of my life. And if Jesus chooses to come in the course of my lifetime, when he returns, I don't want him to find me hunkered down, finding a way to do as little as possible. If Jesus happened to sneak in the room, I hope he'd find me working. I hope he'd see someone whose heart is flawed, yes, but, but someone who's seeking to do what God would have him to do. I hope he'd find someone that's authentically living out what he believes with all his heart. Friends, we need to know something. This church doesn't belong to us. How vain, how empty for me ever to have a possessive thought towards Coastline Baptist Church. It was founded by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. It was started of his grace. Listen, it's not our church in that sense. It belongs to Him. And we don't reserve the right to be poor stewards of something that was started by Jesus Christ. It belongs to the Lord. Jesus was talking to Peter one day in Matthew chapter 16. And He said this, He said that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It was a play upon words. The name Peter means little rock. And Jesus used another word for rock that means a great big boulder referring to himself. He said, Peter, you need to know something. The church isn't started by you or on you. You're not the originator, the founder. Jesus said, I want you to know something. The church is founded upon a rock, but he said, that rock is me. I'm the chief cornerstone. It's my church, Peter. You get to serve for me. You get to be a part of the work, but the church is all about doing God's will here on earth. Friends, listen, that's the heart we need to have. Jesus made that statement to Peter one day while at a place on Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi. It would have been hot down by the Sea of Galilee and for whatever the reason, maybe that was the reason, Jesus told the disciples, let's go up to Mount Hermon for a while. They traveled up to Mount Hermon and that's the place where the headwaters for the Jordan River come. 
And, and it's a place that would have been about 30 degrees cooler. And, and there was a lot of water and vegetation, a beautiful place. And, and in the caves there adjacent to where they may have been, there were these areas that were temples to the deities of the day. Gods with a little g. In fact, the big cave there was to the god Pan, the god of water. And people would go there and they would have all these places of worship. And they referred to this place as the gates of hell. And Jesus is standing here with his followers, and he says, Peter, know this, the church has started on me. It's my church, and you get to serve with me. And he said, I want you to look at all these false systems of belief, all these false deities, all these these beliefs that lead people astray. He said, I want you to know they're not going to prevail against my church because it's founded upon me and I'm the rock. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And I need to remind this church today that Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail. And last time I checked, gates don't attack. Jesus is not saying that somehow some rogue gates are going to be coming through and some rogue gates are going to attack the church. No, he's saying this, that as a church, we need to be aggressive. We need to be after it. We need to be going after people that don't know Jesus. We need to be living out the love of Jesus Christ. Think of that. The gates of hell won't prevail. Jesus was aggressive. He told us things like this. Go out into the highways and go out into the hedges and compel them to come in that my house might be full. That's what Jesus said. He said, have a heart for the house. Paul wrote in Romans 8 that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And when you understand that we are secure and victorious in Jesus Christ, it'll give you the confidence you need to launch out with your life and seek to help as many people as possible because as people of faith, we cannot lose the gates of hell. The false systems of belief will never prevail against the truth of Jesus. I love that David dreamed bond his lifetime. He just believed that God had a greater work yet to be done followed by an even greater work. David had a heart for the house, and it's seen in the fact that he said, God, help me to do whatever I can, wherever I can, with whomever I can, as long as I can, with all that I can. David lived with a legacy in mind. God, help me to bless others. David lived with a joyful heart. David had bright hopes for the future and optimism. That was the kind of heart that made a difference. And this is a day that we've talked about as a church family, we've set aside as a day of generosity. A day where we want to say, Lord, help us to have a heart for the house and for our church family. Uh, We've set this aside as a day to receive a special offering. A special offering. Uh, When our church started, we had a beautiful sanctuary. It was our living room. We had a very nice living room. Isn't that a beautiful sanctuary? No? I'll tell my wife you disapprove of her uh, decorations there. That was kind of back in the home interiors era. And uh, that, that was it. We'd get together. And I'm telling you, I would just teach the Bible, and, and people listened, and we would tell folks about Christ. And, and, and from our living room, we went to various community centers, and, and, and we kind of bounced around to different community centers. Is that not the mother of all things in front of a pulpit there? You know, it was like our harvest Sunday. And and uh, we were able to meet in various community centers. And, and then our church gave to provide a, a, a property. And, and we renovated that auditorium. And then we bought this property. And, and we first opened the offices to give us a place from which we could work. And we just decided as a church, look, we'll buy this property, but we're not going to borrow any money to do stuff. 
if we're going to help somebody or if we're going to build the place out, we're going to do it as we can. And so over the years, as, as we've had the ability, we've opened up different parts uh, of the property and we were able to get the auditorium squared away and, and looking good. And we were able to open up the multi-purpose space. And we were to open up the, uh, the classrooms. And, and we had recently a ribbon cutting for the children's space. And, and I, want, I want our church to know it's your giving that made this possible. Churches don't just happen. It's through the faithfulness of God's people. It's through your heart for the house. And today our giving is for our future. Our future. A part of our offering today is going to help us. I'm not going to go through all the details again. We've taken time to do that, but we're going to apply money down to the principal on our loan because we've got about 24 more payments before the first note is, is just done. And that gives us great leverage for the big future we're believing God for. I have bright hopes for the future. I'm optimistic about the future. God's going to do something here. It's about our future. It's about our home. We want to do the best we can with what we have. And it's about our reach. Probably the biggest part of our offering this year, we're going to give away. We're going to give it away. Because we believe in the value of the local church. Matt and Katie, who serve with us here, are going to go out and they're going to launch a church. And we're going to be a part of that in every way. Prayer, giving, and all of it. But, but we're going to have an opportunity to reach out. That's what today is all about for our church. I'd like to ask each of you, if you would, today, uh, to pull out from your, your worship guide or the seat in front of you, whatever the case may be, uh, these special envelopes and this commitment card. I'm going to talk about these, if I may. And again, if you're our guest, God bless you. We're glad you're here. We didn't plan this season of giving with, with you in mind, but uh, it's an opportunity for our church family to be a part of the work the Lord's doing here. First of all, I want to talk about this envelope. Uh, we're going to receive an offering today, um, and you can use this envelope for this if you'd like. Uh, if, if you're uh, going to write a check, you can use any envelope. Just write on the check, you know, this much to uh, tithe or whatever, and this much for the offering. We'll make sure it goes where you want it to go. But we've provided envelopes for you if you'd like to give uh, this way. And um, I, I want to add this. Maybe I'm a little bit sensitive, but I just want to remind our church I'm in this with you. Our family's giving. Our family's committing. I want you to know that. So this is how we can give today, this and other ways. And then this is uh, our commitment card. It's not a pledge card. You're not pledging. You're just saying to the church family, uh, over the course of the next year, I'd like to give to this project. It helps us to plan, to know how we can support missions endeavors, how we can pay down on, on our loan and so forth. And so there's a perforated section here. And uh, you can tear the bottom part off and place that in the offering plate. And uh, again, our family every week uh, will give towards this. And so uh, there's two things here. One thing is an offering today that has nothing to do with this card. Nothing. Um, so if you give today, great. But don't write that on this because then we don't want to double it up and, and overestimate. So... Uh, if you want to give today, use an envelope or any one of our giving methods. And if you want to give beyond today over the course of the next year, uh, I'd invite you to use one of these. And so, uh, as most of you know, tonight is our night of worship. And we're going to have great music and have a time of giving tonight. Our family will give tonight in the night of worship. If you can be here tonight, I'd invite you to come. And uh, it'll be a great time in many ways, but a time of giving. And if you won't be able to make it tonight, 
certainly you can give this morning as we receive our offering. But uh, I thank God for the privilege of doing this. Hey, Coastline, I love you guys. And I'm glad that for about 17 and a half years now, we're really a testimony of what a group of ordinary people can do when we seek to love God and love others. And uh, it's wonderful. So I love you, and I'm grateful that you're here today. I'd like to ask our ushers to prepare to come forward for our offering this morning. And uh, as they do, I want to have a time of prayer. Would you all be so kind as to bow your heads as we prepare to go to the Lord? And uh, as our heads are bowed this morning, I want to ask this. I, I wonder how many of you are here today and you'd say, Pastor, as you get ready to pray, uh, if you could think of me, I'm in need of prayer. Um, as Jeremy started our service earlier today, he, he mentioned the fact that life's not always easy and we go through things. And sometimes when we come to church, we even bring burdens with us. And, and maybe you'd say, Pastor, listen, I, I know what that's all about. I, I talked today about our expectations not being met and the disappointment and discouragement that can come from that. And, and maybe you'd say, Pastor, listen, that's, that's kind of where I'm at today. And, and so you're here and you'd say, Pastor, listen, if you would, think of me in prayer. Let my hand I'll raise in a moment represent someone that's just saying, God, I need your special work in my heart. I wonder, are there those this morning by the testimony? Just a quickly raised hand. Pastor, think of me in prayer. Pray for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, you can put your hands down. Let me ask this question. We're talking today about having a heart for the house and a heart for the God of the house. And, and, and maybe today, as we say these types of things, you're wondering if you, if you even have a relationship with God. I mean, how, how can we really know what it is to have a heart for God if we're unsure that that relationship's even been established, that it's settled? And so maybe you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not sure if my heart stopped beating right now that I'd immediately go to heaven and be with God. I'm, I'm just not sure of that. I might, I might not, but, but there's a measure of doubt. And uh, to you today, I'd say, listen, I'd like to be in prayer for you. And, and I wonder, are there some here today that say, Pastor, I don't even know if anyone can know it, but if someone could know that they have a relationship with God, I, I don't mind you thinking of me in prayer. Uh, I don't know that. And if it could be known, I'd like to. Are there those by the testimony, just a raised hand? Pastor, pray for me. I'm just not sure I have that relationship with God, but I'd like to know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As our ushers come this morning, we'll ask God's blessing upon this offering. Our Father, we're so grateful that you are a God of love. Lord, we're thankful for all that you do, and we're thankful for the fact that you allow us to have a part. You provide for us so that we may have a part. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored through this season of giving in the life of our church. I, I pray that you'd help us to prepare for our future, to carry on your work here in a great way. And Lord, I pray that as a church family, we would, we would be diligent to give to others, to make the way for others to come to know you. Bless this church family. Bless us, Lord, as, as we come. And, and may these gifts be representative of hearts that you possess, hearts that are yours. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this prayer in your name, the name that's above every name. Amen.